of God's word. Turning with me once again, <clears throat> excuse me, to the book of Habakkuk. So last week, we didn't really take a pause from Habakkuk. We were in uh, Romans chapter 1. We were really looking at, at, at Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verse 4, through the lenses of uh, the Apostle Paul there in Romans chapter 1. Well, today we are now back to the context of the book of Habakkuk. And we're now turning our attention to the second oracle from God. The first oracle was in response to Habakkuk's question. Why do you allow the wicked in Israel to oppress the righteous remnant in Israel? And God comes to him and he says, I'm not allowing it. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to judge it using the Babylonians. That was a problem for Habakkuk because the Babylonians were far worse than the unrighteous people in Israel. And so he goes to God again. God, is this fair? Is it right? Is it just for you to come and to bring the Babylonians upon us given how bad they are? Now in chapter 2, we come to really the main point of this second oracle from God. God's answer is, they're not getting away with it. Just because I am using them for a righteous purpose, a, right, a righteous reason, that does not mean that they are going to get away with it. That does not mean that I am not going to judge them as well. And so what we have today is the content of this judgment. A content, the content of it and also the reasons for it. So now before I read God's holy and inner word from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 6 through 20, let us pray and ask that he might add his blessing to our time together this morning. Let's pray. Our most gracious heavenly father, your word is the light of our life. It shines into the dark recesses of our minds and of our hearts and it expels that darkness by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, without spiritual eyes, we cannot see it. But Father, this is exactly what we ask you for this morning, that we might have those spiritual eyes, that we might see it for our own edification, for our own salvation. But Father, especially that your name might, might receive glory through your salvation of sinners such as ourselves. So Father, would you please do this for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of our soul. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of God from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations and the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink 
You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze upon their nakedness. You will, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as well as the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A mental, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent for him. Amen. Um, a problem that I notice in the world, and unfortunately in many, many churches and people who sit pews, is having, I think what I would call an overly critical view of history. Now, I'm not saying that history isn't something that we can be critical of. Even the history of the church. The church has done some pretty bad things in its history. The church has been wrong about a lot of things throughout its history. But something that I notice when people are being critical of such things is that they, they, they're critical of it as if they are sitting kind of enthroned on high, looking down their noses at what people have done through history, and, look, and looking at it as if that was something that they would never do. I would, If I were in a situation like that, if you put me in a time machine and took, put me back hundreds of years or thousands of years, I would have never done something like that. If you had given me the type of power that some of these kings of old have had, say King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, if you had given me that kind of power, I would have, I would have used that power for good. I would have never done the things that they did. Let me ask a question. How sure are you that you wouldn't have done the same thing? How sure are you that you wouldn't have done the same thing and even worse? What evidence do you have to the contrary? Have you had, ever had the type of power that Nebuchadnezzar has had? I, unless I'm missing my guess, I don't see any dictators or monarchs in a congregation today? Did you ever have the opportunity to do that? What evidence do you have to the contrary? R.C. Sproul has said a lot of things that have really stuck with me. One of the things that he has said that I think has really convicted my heart and how I view history is the words, power corrupts, but absolute power will corrupt. Absolutely. If I gave you the power that these kings have, if I put you in their spot, if I removed any idea of some higher powers, by the way, most of these kings thought themselves to be God. If I gave you a God complex, which by the way, we all have one, it's just kind of repressed. If I allowed that God complex to come to the surface and I gave you sovereign to do whatever you will, and I parts of those who are under you a fear so striking that they dare not say a thing against you, are you so sure that you would be a benevolent victim? A benevolent victim. Are you so 
today in our text, it is really easy for us to look at history, the history of Babylon through those lenses as if they're the bad guys and we're the righteous judge sitting in the judgment seat, casting judgment upon Babylon. But here's the thing. There's the Babylon of 3,000 years ago, and then there's the Babylon sitting in the pew today. There's the Babylon even standing in the pulpit today, the little Babylon that dwells within us all. And so when we come to this text, I want to just go ahead and just, just remove that spirit from us. We're not the innocent, righteous judges sitting down, passing judgment upon Babylon. In a real way, when we hear the judgment of God upon Babylon, we are also hearing the judgment of God upon ourselves. And what is it exactly that God is judging? Well, it's easy to say, well, he's judging power, but he's not judging power. Power itself is not bad. God has power. He delegates power. Our, our authority, they have power, and that power is good. What is bad and what is evil is what we do with power. What does power become in the hands of an evil, in, in an evil person, in the hands of evil Babylon? And so that's what I want us to focus on today. How the Babylonians use power. So I want us to look at this in three different parts. First of all, the Babylonians' use of power. Secondly, God's judgment of that power. And then thirdly, how God uses that power. So the Babylonians' use of power, how God uses that, how God judges that use of power. And then lastly, how God uses that Let's begin. How Babylon uses their power. First, they use their power for their own security, for their own safety. But as we'll see, it's not going to be a real safety. It's not going to be a real security. And so as we come to this section here, there are really two different parts to it. In verses 6 through 14, you have the first set of three woes. The first set of woes begins there in verse 6. The second one comes down in verse 12. And then that third one there is that uh, is, is is down in verse uh, 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 verse nine and then verse twelve. Verse twelve is that third woe. Now something you'll notice here about that first and third woe, in both those woes, God's God is coming in judgment against them because of the violence that they had done. They, they had been building a town. They had been building an empire based on intimidation, blood, and violence. But in those sections. God does not give a reason that they were exercising that power in that way. The only reason that is attached to it is in that second woe there in verse 9. I think the reason for that is because this is the overarching reason for all of, all of these woes. Why are they using violence? Why are they using the extortion there in verse 6? It is for their own safety. So there in verse 9, he says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And so they're using this intimidation and this violence to, to intimidate people out of bringing harm to them, from rising up against them. It's a threat. It's a threat of violence. Now, I don't think I really have to really go into much detail about how we use power in that same way. I mean, it's, it's the basic concept of, of bullying through intimidation. But I do want to focus a bit on today what is said there in that first word in verse 6. 
look at in verse 6. God says uh, in that first woe section, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. The word pledges there in the Hebrew, if you want to give it a very modern translation, you can maybe say credit card bills. A person who goes out there and he's he's collecting debt. Now, here's the thing. Debt, we might, like we don't like paying our bills. And so when you get that bill in the mail, that's not very good. But when you go out and buy that house, it is a good thing. It seems good. It seems good. What the Babylonians are doing is they're using this debt as a way to suppress and to keep their thumb over their enemies. You gotta hang it over their heads to be a, a brutal and vicious credit, uh, uh, credit collector. Uh, uh, someone who is going to, going to oppress them with the threats of uh, foreclosing on their home. Basically making slaves of everyone. Now, I don't think any of us are really in a place to do that with, with, with money. I don't think any of us are owning banks or anything like that. I don't think any of us are in this, this, this kind of scenario where we can do such a thing like that. But that doesn't mean that we don't do it. How do little Babylon do this? How do, how do we use debt to basically extort enslavement out of others, to kind of promote our own safety? Unfortunately, I think the easiest way that we do this, and like I was telling the, the, the young folks while I go, is through forgiveness. Particularly through a misunderstanding of forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. Have you or somebody that you know, maybe you did something to them, maybe, maybe they did something to you a while back. It was very hurtful. It was very wounding. And being grieved by how you wounded somebody, you go and you ask, you ask for forgiveness. But please, would you forgive me? And then only for years and decades afterwards to have the person come back to you, kind of holding that forgiveness over your head. Sure, they gave you in the moment the words, yeah, I forgive you, but it keeps coming up over and over and over again. Well, when we do that, we are using forgiveness as a tool, not even a tool like that, but as a, as a weapon to kind of threaten and to get things out of the person who has wounded us. Basically to use our own wounds as a weapon against the person who is asking for forgiveness. And we are actually withholding. Yes, we're using the words forgiveness, but there's no actual forgiveness in it. The Spirit of Christ is not in that. How does what does forgiveness actually look like for the Christian? Well, for that, we need to look at how Christ forgives. And so I want to give you a few different Old Testament passages here that I think excellently highlight what it is that we have in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. All of these from the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Listen to these words. This is God's I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God omniscient, God omniscient is blocking from his mind 
the knowledge of your transgressions in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah 31, the, the, the prophecy of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. He describes the new covenant in this way. He says, and no longer shall he teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does Yahweh the Lord remove our transgressions from us. They are blotted out from their from God's memory. When God says in Christ Jesus that your sins are forgiven, it's as if when we go to him carrying the weight and the burden of our of our sins and how we've hurt others and how or maybe how we've been hurt by them. We come with them and we place them before the throne and we say, God, do something with this. What what am I what am I supposed to do with these things? His response is, What transgression? What sin? I don't see it. I see blood. And it's not your blood. It's not the blood of the ones that you've wounded. But it's the blood of my son. It has covered and blotted it out. I see his righteousness, his law keeping, his goodness. I see none of these things. When we are commanded to forgive, we are commanded to forgive in the same manner. Our forgiveness is a mirror of divine forgiving. And so what does that look like? Well, it doesn't look like Babylon here, who sits there and, and, and holds it out, holds our forgiveness out as a debt that needs to be repaid. Our forgiveness is a forgiveness of that debt. So what does it look like? It looks like this. When you forgive, and this is, I, I want to speak to almost anybody who's in a relationship with anybody else. That's everybody in this room. Unless you just crawled out from under a rock, you fall into this category. If you're a if you're a if you're a parent, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a son, if you're a daughter, if you're a friend, if you're a coworker, if you're an employee, you fall into this category. If you have a relationship with somebody else, and this person's a sinner, which they are, and you're a sinner, at some point, someone is going to be wounded, and someone is going to require forgiveness. And when they come to you with a broken heart and they ask you for that forgiveness, do you keep bringing it back up? Husband, wife, maybe your spouse wounded you years ago. Do you ever find yourself arguing about something? It may not even be any relation to the wound. It might be what to what to eat for dinner. And you, you, you start an argument. Do you feel that little temptation to bring up how you were wounded all those years ago? That's not Christ. That's Babylon. That is a Babylon within you. Kids, you feel the same way. Particularly, particularly not just kids, just, just even adults. Your, your parents. I mean, sometimes relationships between parents and children can be can be very difficult. Do you do you think of how you were maybe wounded by some some bad decisions with your parents? Because they're imperfect people, they're sinners as well, and maybe you're a hurt by, and you're carrying that with. You. Well, have they come to you and asked for forgiveness? Because if they have, 
And they have come to you and say, I'm, I was wrong. I hate that I did that. For you to keep bringing it up over and over, that's not Christ. That is Babylon. That is Babylon within. And you know what Babylon gets? They get judgment. They get justice. What is it that we pray in the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's not saying that our forgiveness of others is the requisite merit for eternal life. That's not what the Lord's Prayer is saying, but it is saying this. If it is this forgiveness of God that you are seeking, the forgiveness that you give others will mirror it. It will reflect that forgiveness. Asking forgiveness is hard. But sometimes in the difficultness of that, because in that you have to, you have to admit that you're wrong. That's certainly something that we need to be need to do. But sometimes getting lost in that difficulty comes the other difficulty of actually giving forgiveness. Let me just let you know, when you fail to give that forgiveness, that is Babylon. That is what they are doing. That is ultimately why they're going to come under judgment. You try to seek out your own security by withholding forgiveness. That's not the only way Babylon seeks. Uh, that's not the only reason. The only reason that Babylon uses their power, they also use it to shame others. Look at me in verse fifteen. Woe to him who makes neighbors drink! You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now, drunkenness is not something we usually, you know, relate to. You know, wrath. You don't go down Bill Street and see somebody drunk and someone all over themselves and thinking, well, their friends must have been really mad at them to get them that drunk. No, you look at well, it's usually something you connect with, like something like celebrating or 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 something like that. And so, why why is their wrath being being shown as through through drunkenness? Well, the answer to this is that they are using their decadence. They are using the stuff that they have in order to garner the glory from the people that they oppress. And you see this excellently in the book of Daniel. By the way, Daniel and his friends. They're under captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. And so here you see exactly what they're doing. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are, they are, they're, they're in prison, but not in a prison, not in a dungeon, not in a pit. They're in a palace. They're in the palace. And day and night, they don't have food rations. They have feasts every single night. Meats and cheeses and vegetables and all these different things. But they refuse to eat them. Now, it's easy to say that they're refusing to eat them because, well, they're, they're not kosher. But I don't think that's the case. For one thing, one of the things that it is mentioned that they are given is wine. Wine was very kosher to the Jews. And so why are they refusing these things? Why are they refusing to eat the king's food? It's because they realize that it's a trap. They realize that what this is doing is that through the giving of these good gifts, they are trying to put a wedge between Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their God. Who's your God? Oh, the one that the one that calls you to come into Babylon into a foreign land to be enslaved? Or is it King Nebuchadnezzar? Look at all the bounty that I've given. Look at all the good things that I've done. Who's more worthy of worship? Me or that God? Me and your Yahweh over there. Who is better? This is the shame. This is the nakedness that this is talking about. And you know what? It works. When the Persians eventually come in, they take over the Babylonian Empire, 
and they send the Israelites back in Israel, most of them don't go. Most of them will remain in Babylon as Babylonians. The reason they did that was because it was very but it's shame. What's sad is the people who are being shamed, the people who are being laughed at, they're, they don't know. They're just having a good time. They're enjoying the good benefits of it. Well, how do we do the same? How do we do the same thing with this? Well, oftentimes it can be through our good work. Anytime you try to haul the glory, it's not the glory of some Joe Schmo that you're trying to hold. You're trying to behold. It is the glory of God. And here's the thing. It doesn't belong to you. That is not your glory. Look with me and what, look with me what, uh, and, and what, what he's, uh, what, um, uh, what is said down here. Let me find the verse real quick. Um, lost the place in my head. Give me a second. Oh, good time. Either way. Lost my place in my mouth. Sorry. Uh, the, 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 man, I totally lost my place here. Um, so we're, well, so the Babylonians, uh, so they're promoting the worship. They're, they're promoting the worship of, uh, of themselves. They're, they're hogging the, they're hogging the glory here. Uh, in, in this text, God, through the prophet Habakkuk, is going to say that the whole earth is going to be filled with my glory. It's going to be filled with my glory. Uh, man, I wish. Yeah, sorry, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm losing, I'm losing it in my notes. But either way, in there somewhere, God is going. It is God's glory. It is not man's glory. And so we can often use our good works, our works of charity, to be able to gain this glory. A, a, a great example of this that, that has been kind of stuck in my mind was a video that I once watched uh, of a musician who had come from a very poor town, a very poor city. And he goes back to the city, he goes back to this town, he goes back to the street that he grew up on. And he's he's in a he's in a limousine or at least some type of big fancy car. And he pulls up and he blows a horn and all these people, they come running out of their houses to, to see him. He's kind of a hero to them. And he comes out of the, he comes out of the sunroof he comes out of the sunroof and he begins to just throw cash just all over the place. And I remember reading in the comments of that where some of the people were saying, like, man, look how good that is. I mean, would it be nice if more people were would it be nice if more people weren't charitable like that? I'm thinking that. I'm like, I don't see anything good about that. What I see is a man sitting high and lifted up, hanging out of this big car, and poor people falling over themselves, trying to pick up all this money off of the ground. What it looks to me, it looks like, it looks like the Israelites clamoring to bow down at the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what it looks like to me. It is trying to receive this glory. And we as Christians need to be very careful not to do this. I mean, it's it's interesting too that at one hand, Jesus says that he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your father. So do your works, let it be seen. But then on the other hand, turn around and say, when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? What do I do? This is takes wisdom. Why are you doing the good? 
Is it so that people might see your glory and see what you're doing and glorify you? Or is it so that God might receive the glory? And say, here's the thing. I think think what Jesus is saying, he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I think he's telling us, check yourself. Be very suspicious. As we talked about how you need to be suspicious with power. Be suspicious with how you use your good works as well. So now the question is, well, how does God judge that power? This is our second point. How God judges power. So I don't want to spend much time on this section, but I do want to introduce you to a a term. It's called punitive frustration. Punitive frustration. It's a fancy word, but it encapsulates what you see almost in almost all the Old Testament when they're speaking of judgment and what that looks like. God is going to not merely just rain fire down, but what he is going to do is he is going to toy with those who are in power. He's going to toy with them. He's going to frustrate. They're going to try to get something out of what they're doing, but they're not going to be able to get it. Look with me in verse 7 and 8. It looks this way here. He says, your debtors will arise and make you tremble. You've plundered many nations, and now you will be their plunder. The idea there is, your debtors are going to be actually going to be your credit. You're trying to you're trying to extort something out of them, but they're going to extort it out of you. And verse ten and eleven, you've made a safe house, but the stone will cry out and the beam will respond. This is basically saying the safe house that you built for yourself is actually your tomb. You will be you will be buried in it. And then in verse sixteen, you seek glory, but you will receive shame instead the picture of this divine judgment is one of frustration and the same will happen to us little babylonians our wealth and our power will make um our make-believe virtue they may, may keep us safe for a while but that safety will turn into ruin in the hands of a holy 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 god and it makes sense that God would frustrate these plans of men because the glory of God does not belong to them. This is verse 13. This is the verse I was trying to think of all ago. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. It's his glory. To seek your own glory, to live your life, and the pursuit of that is what the, the what, what the author of Ecclesiastes says. It's vanity of vanities. It is a striving after wind. You are grasping at something that you cannot hold. Why? Because God will not let you have it. That is his glory. It is not yours. And what do we do? Where do we go when we are frustrated? Well, the Babylons in us run to idols. It runs through false gods. Verses 18 uh, through 20 here. Um, what prophet is an idol when its maker has, uh, maker has shaped a, me- a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker's trust in its own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Notice there, it's too silent. The first silence there is the silence of the idols. The picture there is is that Babylon, being frustrated by God, are now running to their idols, and they're begging them, 
Save us from the judgment. Save us. Make much of us. And what will the idol say? Nothing. Silence. But then their babbling is going to be silenced. Well, there in verse 20, for the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. There is the picture of judgment. We can sit here high on our horses and say, I'm a righteous man. I've done good enough. Who is God? Who is God to judge me? I have a thing or two to say about say to God. I have a thing or say a thing or two to say about God. You haven't done right. I would have been better at this. That's easy to say, really easy to say. But then one day you will stand before the throne of His glory, and we will all be like Isaiah. No matter how righteous we might have been in, our, in ourselves, we will fall on our faces and we will cry out, "Woes upon ourselves! Woe is me! I am a dead man." Silence. No one will be able to give a defense. Why? Because of the Babylon of death. That Babylon that seeks the glory that does not belong to us. But now, here's another question. Why does God just, why does God even allow this to happen? Why doesn't God just come and just and just smite the Babylons, smite the Babylons, and it just, it just kind of ended altogether? Why does he tolerate it with much patience? The answer is this. He still has a use for it. The power, even in the hands of the wicked, has a use in the hands of God. It has a purpose. Let me read to for you a quote from the Puritan William Grinnell. Not very, not very famous Puritan, um, but he is the author of a book called The Christian in Full Armor, which is one of the best Puritan books that have really ever been written. Unfortunately, he didn't do much else. Uh, but William Grinnell in that book says this. He says, God often suffers a contrary power any time to arise. And that very junction of time when he intends to show his mercy to his people by raising up a more magnificent pillar of remembrance to his own power. Let me break that up for you. The first reason that God allows evil to continue and allows this power to continue is because through it, he will be shown to be more powerful. The power of God will be the backdrop, the jeweler's point, against which the power of Babylon will show itself to be pure and utter futility, pure and utter weakness. It pales in comparison to his power. And he will make the magnificence of his power known by rising up these fake make-believe powers that he might crush them. That is why he allows it so that his glory of the glory of his power might be put into full display. But there was a second reason, wasn't there? That his mercy might be put on to display. So here's the thing, and a very important concept to understand. Mercy never comes. Never comes at the expense of justice. Mercy never comes at the expense of justice. It will always come through justice. This works in a couple of ways. First of all, in the book of Revelation, in the new heaven, the new earth, there'll be no suffering, there'll be no more persecution, there'll be no more death, and there'll be no more sickness. You know why? Because death has been judged, 
and has been thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more persecution because there will be no one there to actually persecute. They will be judged. And then we will be saved through that thing. There will be no more evil. There will be no one to commit the evil. Salvation through judgment. But secondly, you see this alluded to in verse 16. You have, let me just read for you verse 16. Here, Yahweh says, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in Yahweh's right hand shall come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Um, anytime a Christian sees that word cup, a certain picture is probably there. When Jesus is in the garden, Gethsemane, and he is sweating blood, is pouring from his body, he is in anguish. What is it specifically that he prays for? God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was not the will of his father that that cup shall pass from his son. So here's the truth. That cup will be pressed to every mouth in this grave. But not every cup will be the same. The cup will either contain the wine of God's wrath or it will be empty because it was first place to the lips of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, it is empty. There is no more wrath. There is no more wrath in it. It is a John There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not in Christ, all these frustrations, all the silence of judgment that will be laid bare on the last day, it will be full. And you will drink it for eternity. This is not a fun thing to talk about. No one likes to talk about eternal judgment. But it's real. And that cup is full. And you will drink it for a million years. And it will still be just as full as the day it was first placed to your lips. But in Christ, it was consumed in deity. What a mystery. It is mystery all the immortal died. For my sake, for my benefit. You see, mercy never comes at the sake of justice. It comes through justice. But who will receive the judgment? Will it be you? Will it be Babylon? Or will it be Christ? It's my prayer for everyone in this room. You will say, that cup belonged to my Lord. I give praise forever to his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the goodness that you have sown us in Christ Jesus that he has taken the cup of your wrath through his own lip and he has drank it to nothing. But Father, having been redeemed and reconciled to you, we'd ask that these would not merely be words in our mouths, but there would be truth in our heart for the sake of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.